Hey everybody, welcome back to Discover Springford. I'm standing in front of the Springford Area Historical Society, and today I'm super excited to sit down with the president, William Bruner, to discuss the history of the Twin Burrows. I'm Jeff Desiato, a local realtor, aspiring actor, and transplant to the Springford area. And I'm on a mission to find the best that Springford has to offer. I'll be interviewing local business owners, civil servants, and other prominent members of the community to find out what makes Springford a great place to live, work, eat, and explore. I invite you to join me on my journey as I discover Springford. Hey everybody, welcome back to Discover Springford. I'm here with William Bruner, who's the president of Springford Area Historical Society. I'm very excited about this episode because Originally, my intention was to try to do this first as the launch for the show, but with schedules and things like that, it, it, I never felt that we would be able to launch the show if I, if I tried to get all the ducks in, in a row. But we're, we're ending the season with this uh, episode, so I'm very excited to, uh, to be able to meet with you, William, uh, or Bill, as you go by. Bill, and, yeah, uh, Bill's good. So why don't we dive right in? You know, we, For a lot of people, like myself, who are transplants to the area, I think this information is just going to really help them feel like they're a part of the town. Uh, I know just in talking with you for the last few hours, I feel like I I feel more equipped to say that this is my hometown. So mm. welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, so why don't we start off with just your personal story and how you, where you were born and, and how you uh, came to be a, uh, the resident uh, inform, uh, what's the word? informative uh, person of the Springford area. <laughs> okay. Well, I was born in Phoenixville. And uh, in 1958, my parents, uh, who were renting a house, bought a house and moved to Spring City. So I, I was going into ninth grade, so I, I didn't have any choice in the matter. I moved along with the family, so that's how I got to Spring City. And I went to Springford High School. Uh, the first year, though, that I was here, I went to the old Spring City High School, which at that time was a junior high. They only had half-day sessions, and I was really feeling bummed out about having to move away from Phoenixville mm-hmm. and come to Spring City, and I didn't know anybody. And I went to school, and on my first day, I took my uh, lunch. I was in ninth grade, and at lunchtime, I said, well, where do we go to eat lunch? And they said, well, it's, it's half-day sessions. You go home. You're done. You only go a half a day. <laughs> and I, you know, from that day, I said, boy, this move to Spring City, that, this was the right move. <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I don't have to go to school in the afternoons. But that was only short-lived. The, yeah. the very next year, they opened up what now is the ninth grade center, but back then was the brand new high school out on Lewis Road. So I got to go there for three years, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, graduated in 62. Uh, I married a girl that was from Spring City, uh, went to school with her, but I never talked to her when we were in school. But that's another story. And that's, <laughs> that's history. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, we got married and uh, two kids, and we bought a house in Spring City. Matter of fact, the house that we bought on Arch Street, we've lived in it since 1966. So it's 51 years in the wow. same house. That's amazing. Uh, it was our starter house. But somehow it ended up being our finisher. Of that. <laughs> we we started it, we, but it's 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 a nice, comfortable place, yeah, sure. and we're, we're we're happy with. So that, that's a little bit of my my personal life. Now, I am a collector. I love to collect different things, and one of the things that I collected uh, 
was postcards. And my early interest was uh, railroad. I had toy trains, model trains, I, uh, railroad postcards. And then I came down to, uh, in 1988, the Historical Society was four years old, but they didn't have a museum. In 1988, they opened up a museum down at the train station. Uh, now, the way that all came about, the Historical Society, they had formed an organization in 84 with a bunch of people from Spring City and Norris Four. Lee Warner and his wife Rita were kind of like the, they spearheaded the group. Right next door where Kathy Calhoun's jewelry store was a federal, first federal bank, they had their meetings in the basement and for four years they got together and they talked about history and they had their common interest that uh, was a forming, a formation of a historical society. And Lee had his business security alarm business and he had rented the, the railroad station so he decided that he was going to allow us to use half of the station which is where the pink moose is now to have our museum so people that were members and the people that started brought stuff in and then gradually people started donating stuff and we had a full-fledged museum <laughs> at the train station and that went on for a number of years and I came down as a rail fan, taking pictures of the station and pictures of trains. And uh, a guy by the name of Lawrence Shainer, he was a town historian. And, I mean, that's, that, that's a name that you don't get by election. It's yeah. kind of given to you. Right. <laughs> and uh, he came out and he said, what are you doing, son? I said, oh, I'm just taking a picture of trains. He says, well, come on inside here. And he took me into the museum, into the train station and showed me around and talked to me. And then he, he, he was a postcard collector. And I was interested in getting pictures, and he said, you ought to get postcards of the old train station. And he got me interested in collecting postcards, and I started out collecting pictures of photographs of train stations. And then it evolved, and the evolution was rather quick. Yeah. Uh, it, it evolved into collecting postcards of Spring City and Roar's Ford. And within a year, I joined the Historical Society. And two years later, from, from the time I first met Lawrence, I became a board member. So I've been a board member since 1990. Wow. And uh, I, my postcard collecting evolved into Spring City, Roar's Ford, and Phoenixville, where I was born. And I would, uh, before, these are before the days of eBay. Right. <laughs> you, know, you don't sit at a computer and punch a couple buttons and you, you bought it. No, yeah. you, got, you had to do the legwork. And I would go to uh, uh, postcard shows, Rarodiana shows, paper shows up in Allentown, uh, all the different, Renningers, Flea Market, you name it, yeah. I would be there. And I would save up money and... Anybody that knows me, if I go to a flea market with $100 in my pocket that I saved up to buy something, I'm coming home with $100 worth. Of, <laughs> I'm not coming home with money. I'm coming yeah. home with stuff. So when I would go out looking for uh, Spring City postcards, if I didn't see any, I might buy Royal's Ford. I might buy Phoenixville. But I bought postcards and, and brought them home. And I have a room, one of our bedrooms that's not being used, is my postcard room, and I have albums and albums full of, full of postcards. Wow. I, I, you know, and uh, I, I, I go to auctions and 
buy collections, and my aunt gave me her collection. It just snowballed. And uh, so the, the postcards was, was what really, uh, Lawrence Shaner got me into the museum, got me interested in postcards. He was a big collector, so we shared that hobby. And that was what r really got me going. Uh, in 2001, uh, I retired. Now, I, 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 reti I worked for the state, and okay. I retired early. What type of work did you do uh, before well, was, you retired, like well, for the majority of your career? I'll, I'll give you my work history. Oh, sure. <laughs> my work, <laughs> I started out when I got married, 18 years old. I got a job at the bleach company in Spring City. I, I remember it well. I got a dollar yeah. thirty-five an hour. <laughs> I worked at the bleach company for a very short time. I needed yeah. I needed more money to yeah. wife and having a family on the way, and I got a job at Firestone Tire and Rubber, which is up in Pottstown, and I worked there for 18 years, and I was basically member of the union and I, I worked uh, different parts of the, the factory and they closed and then when they closed uh, I had to look for other employment and I ended up uh, getting a job as a service manager for a commercial lawnmower distributor, Lumma Supply. did that for three years. They were on the verge of bankruptcy. I got a job working as a regular uh, service manager at a car dealership, Wagner Auto. Earl Wagner, who has now passed away, hired me, and I worked for Earl for 10 years. And then uh, another company bought him, well, he sold. He sold the business. Another company bought it out, uh, and I stayed with them for a couple years. And then I left there, and I got a job working for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I started out as a, uh, a energy assistance worker, they call it the fuel program, where during the winter you give people assistance with their fuel. I thought that was the best job in the world because <laughs> I, I worked six months a year, and then they laid you off for six months. That's, that's, you get more time off than a school teacher. <laughs> and I did that for two years, and then they came up to me, and uh, uh, Mrs. Byer, who was the director of the, the office, Chester County, and she says, Bill, I'd like you to be a caseworker. I said, oh, I said, uh, I don't have a college degree. I said, I, I can't do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, She said, you've got 10 years of interviewing experience, and you've been in the union for two years. And I stopped, and I thought, interviewing experience. And she said, yeah, she said, you were a service manager for 10 years. Didn't you talk to people every day? I said, yeah, I talk to people every day. She said, that's interviewing. I said, oh, I, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and then... She said, well, and, and you were in the union, because uh, yeah, I had to be in the union in the job that I was yeah. doing. So she said, the union, two years in the union, 10 years experience, you're eligible to take the civil service test. So I went up to Harrisburg, I took the civil service test, and I got my score, and I looked at it, and it was in 87. And I said, oh, my God. Because back then, the... Uh, what do you call them? The, the counselor, the, hire, the, the person that was hiring, uh, they had a, a strict framework, and they would only hire people that had a score of 90 or more. I had an 87. Yeah. I'm not getting hired. Yeah. No way. And so I was happy. Yeah. I'm going to stay, stay in Heap. I'm going to do my work for six months. I'm going to collect my own employment <laughs> and go to the movies in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be all bad. And, and one day, Mrs. Byer comes up, and she taps me on the shoulder. She said, Bill, wear your suit and tie tomorrow. You're going for an interview. I said, what are you talking about? She said, 
three three directors are coming in here tomorrow to interview you. <laughs> I said, you're mistaken. I said, I didn't make above 90. I only made 87. She said, no, you got a 97. 97? She said, come here. And she went in her office. Here, I didn't know this, if you were a union employee, you got a 10-point bonus just like if you were a veteran. Now, you may have heard this at veterans in some places when they go for a job, especially for the state. The state gives them a preference. Well, that preference is 10 extra points on their score. Oh, okay. So I got <clears throat> 10 points on my score. So the, the interview is easy. Yeah. I, I aced the interview, yeah. <laughs> and they hired me, and I, I became a caseworker. And then uh, I had to go to school down Philadelphia. went down every day on the train. Once I learned how to be the caseworker, I came back, and I was the youngest caseworker in the office, and they had a new job search workshop that a new welfare program that included a job search workshop, and they needed somebody to teach the workshop. Nobody wanted that job. So here I go. I, she said, well, you're a new caseworker, but you're, you're going to be the, the job search workshop teacher. You've got to go up to Penn State. They're going to teach you how to conduct the course. So wow. now I'm up, the, up at Penn State. I come back, and for 10 years I taught well, almost 10 years, I taught the job. The, la the last year, they moved me to a different position. But I did the job search workshop for most of the time that I worked for the state. So you were training people how to Find a position job. themselves to you know, make them yes. an attractive candidate exactly. yeah, for a job. Yeah, That's cool. Exactly. And the, the people were uh, under a, a mild threat that if they didn't come in and cooperate, they wouldn't get benefits. Oh, okay. So, I mean, it, was like, it wasn't like when you go to school and you don't go play. No, you, you better go. So they came and they listened, and we had videos that we showed them. And, I mean, some of the basic things that uh, the average person, I hope, would take for granted, like being on time, looking presentable, you know. But, but there were other skills, like, you know, like, when you're talking to an employer, don't tell them that you really need the job. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you got to tell them what you bring to the job. Right. So all of these things that they taught me, I had to, to teach the, the, the clients. And uh, I, I enjoyed it. And yeah. I had some success. And, uh, you know, some of the people actually uh, were, were trying. But I enjoyed the job. And it really, I mean, uh, I got to do the casework job for about a year after that, they took me off the job search program. The job search program was a good program. All those people that turned it down, they turned down what I think was a good job. Yeah. But you have, you have to enjoy what you're right. doing. So in, I guess it was in 2001, uh, they came up to me and uh, they said, we've got one more move. We're putting you in intake. I said, no. I, I said, I've been here, I've been here 10 years I don't need intake. Yeah. And they said, well, you don't have a choice. And I went back to my desk. I picked up the phone. I called the retirement counselor. I said, hey, I said, I've, I've been working here for 10 years, and I'm, I'm 57 years old. I said, I'm pretty sure I can get a pension. And he said, well, yeah, it won't be the same as somebody that worked there 30, but you're eligible for a pension. I said, good, I'm retiring. What do, <laughs> what do I have to do? And he said, well, i got to get all the paperwork ready. And he called me back that afternoon. And, you know, I got a lump sum settlement, uh, and I got uh, the figure that I was going to get every month. And I said, well, yeah, I, I can live on that. And when I'm 62, I can collect Social Security. So I retired. I was only 57. And when I retired, 
Uh, I needed money to supplement. Our income was more than enough to cover our, our bills, but I like to spend money. <laughs> and you can't spend money unless you make money. And I wasn't about, you know, my wife, we're partners in things, but, uh, <laughs> you, you know, she... She, she said, if you're going to spend money, you better earn some money. That's right. So I started selling postcards on okay. eBay. And I, I bought, I went to postcard auctions and I bought postcards. And then in, in 2003, when I did my first book, the Postcard History Series, I got a lot of publicity. And that they, that my story was in one of the Philadelphia papers and local papers. And, and then even though I didn't really consider myself an expert, I started getting people that would call me up wanting me to sell. They wanted to sell their collection to me. And, I mean, I, I, I remember going down to uh, Chestnut Hill and Ardmore and different places where I went to look at people's postcard collections. And I said, well, you, you know, you're not, you're not going to like what I'm going to offer you for them, but I'll make you an offer. And if you, <laughs> you want to sell them, I'll buy them. If, and I, I won't be, feel bad if you don't. Then I, I bought some pretty nice postcard collections. And the thing about collecting postcards that you can go to an auction and you can buy a, a box of postcards for $40 or $50 and you come home and you, you go through it and oh these these Indian postcards Seminole Indians are these dirigible blimps you know yeah. Zepp whatever yeah. the, the, the Zeppelin yeah. oh there, there's a Hindenburg postcard that that's worth money you get to realize what is worth money and what isn't right. Halloween cards are great uh, I sold a, a, a witch on a broomstick. It was a, a naked witch, but it was a black black silhouette. So you, okay. you, yeah. you, you, you and it was printed in 1910. I mean, yeah. you could put this on TV today. Yeah, but, but I sold that on eBay for a friend uh, for 134 dollars. Oh my word! Oh my word! So you right. kind of have to you buy the bulk and then you, you sift you, through you, it to you, see you what's worth. You buy a box of postcards. Yeah. You get 2,000 postcards. And then you sell 20 postcards and you make $100 and the rest sits in your room. Right. And they, they accrue and they come. And, you know, the, the, the postcard market really in the past 10 or 12 years has bottomed out. Yeah. Cards that I paid, train station cards that I paid $20, $25, they're going for 5 or 10 uh, So it, it's, it's bottomed out. Yeah. But I got to do something with my postcards. I got to put them in my books. Yeah. So. There wasn't a total loss, and I enjoyed collecting postcards. So I, I'm into the Historical Society. In 2003, I do my first book. Bob Weichel, who passed on, uh, he wanted me to be president, and I always told him, no, 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 no. And uh, matter of fact, early on when I first joined, he, he made me vice president, and then the next year he said, now, you got to be president next year. I said, no. He said, well, then you can't be vice president. So <laughs> I served one year as vice president. But then after I retired, I told Bob, Bob, I said, I'll be, I'll be president if you want me to. Well, I've been president now for 13 years. <laughs> Bob's gone. Nobody else really wants the job. It's, it's not like, uh, you know, I, I'd love to have somebody come forth and step up. Uh, but uh, I, I've been, been president all these years. And a lot of th a lot of things have changed. A lot of things have happened. But our our biggest uh, problem here, uh, you might think it would be financial. It's it's not financial. I mean, we need money to operate. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. And the Rotary gives us money, and the Burr gives us money, and we, our membership 
Uh, we have a loyal membership that gives us money. But our biggest problem is people. Right. We, we can't get young people involved. It's, it's hard to get. We have one girl now that's doing, going to do some work here in our library, but like hosting. Uh, we've gone to a winter schedule, and that was partly because of people volunteering to host. We're, we're still open Wednesdays from 11 to 3, and we're open Fridays from 11 to 3. That's every week. Yeah. But our winter schedule for Sundays has dropped now to the first and the third Sunday. I do the first Sunday of every month, and Dick Marshall and Joan do the third Sunday. And we, we, we just don't have enough volunteers to cover all of them. Of course, right. the week, Saturdays and Sundays are premium days. Yeah. People pay, but just to find there, there's a lot of good people in both of these towns that would be perfectly capable of coming over here and are interested in history. But it's just that they're so busy and they're involved with so many other things and they don't really have the time to commit to, to, to doing this stuff right. at the Historical Society. Our guests, uh, when they come into the gallery, first thing they see is this cabinet, which is recent donations. And uh, everybody that donates something, they like to think that it's going to be on display. Right. And I explained to them that we try to put everything on display, but then after a while, a decision has to be made. Is it going to be put on permanent display somewhere else in the museum? Is it going to be moved into storage, which would be on the third floor of the house? Uh, and so we try to put recent items on display. Everything in that cabinet uh, has been brought in within the last year. And some of those items will be moved to different areas. but. We do that to try to put things on display. Now, the, the, some of the books and whatnot, they're, they're not going to, uh, they're there because they were donated, but they're, right. they're going to be filed away. Yeah. Whether it'll go in the regular library or on the archives room sure. on the second floor. But uh, all of those things are recent donations. 90% of what you, well, I guess 95% of what you're going to look at in the museum is donations. Wow. We have a very small acquisition budget. We don't normally spend a lot of money purchasing items because stuff is donated all the time. Uh, our donation policy, we just recently uh, changed it. We only accept donations. We don't accept loans or temporary things. <coughs> yeah. when, when you bring an item to us, you are giving it to us. You are signing the paper that we now own it. And we have at our discretion to put it on display, to put it in storage, or if we end up with two or three of the same item, we might choose to sell it. But we will not in any circumstance give it back to you. Yeah. So if, if you have any idea that you don't want to donate it... Yeah, just don't. That makes just, it just, a cleaner break probably, yeah. right? But it's, 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 much, it's much better that way. We've had, yeah. we've had a few items that were given to us in the past, and then time goes by and there's a discrepancy and uh, if something is of value uh, the, the person has children the children usually want it yeah. not because <laughs> it's a family keepsake no <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> there might yeah. be some money in yeah. <laughs> and uh, we we have a few items like that that 
caused us to, to change yeah, our just change, it. change change our policy. <laughs> but we don't purchase. We purchased a few stoves for our collection, and you know we have a large collection of stoves, and that was a large purchase. We we ended up spending thirty five hundred dollars. But that's that's the exception to the rule. We budget like uh, $400 a year oh, wow. for okay. acquisitions. And if something goes on eBay that I think we absolutely have to have, I'll talk to the board and, and we'll bid on it. James Rogers stoves were shipped out on canal boats and they stacked the pallets one on top of another and each pallet had a nine piece cast iron stove. This was a wood burning stove. Now most of these stoves that you're looking at down here were coal burning. There's a difference because the wood uh, a burning stove has to tolerate uh, the larger amount of heat that's given off. But the one thing that every family back a hundred years ago or even a little bit more than a hundred years ago when someone made a purchase to purchase the house and then the next purchase was a stove to heat the house, unless it had all fireplaces. But the stoves were very in demand. And so we had three stove factories here in Roarsford and three in Spring City. This was in Spring City. This is the earliest one, 1843. Uh, the stove factories in Spring City, we also had the Schuylkill Valley, that's the stove here, which became Keystone Stove. But Keystone Stove was a company down in New Jersey, so when they bought out the, the Schuylkill Valley Stove Works, they continued to make stoves, but most of them were made and shipped out other, under other names. So you don't find them as much. They're a, a rare uh, commodity uh, to have one from the Keystone Stove Works. Uh, here, this company, James Rogers, then it was Smith, Francis, and Wells, Chance, Keeley, then it was just Oliver Keeley, and then it was Jaeger Hunter, and today it's the Spring City Electrical Manufacturing Company. So it's going through a lot of different configurations, and it's burned down a couple of times, and uh, the history is long, but the product is still there, and it's still made on the same spot. This building here is the main building of the Shantz Keeley Stove Works. There was, this complex when it was Shantz Keeley was uh, 25 buildings. That's how many buildings comprised the oh, stove wow. work. This is one of the seven stoves that we bought from Bill Pengalli's estate after he died. Bill Pengalli was a stove collector and he had a beautiful collection of stoves and he had seven of them that were on loan this one was another from his collection, uh, Buckwater stove right here. And he had seven stoves that he had left us uh, borrow. And when he died, I said, they're going to come for the stoves. And they, they did. And then we negotiated and we bought all seven of them for $3,500. Wow. The rest of the stoves, and there's a lot of them here, yeah. were all given to us. And uh, we, we have them all on display. Uh, there were, there was a lot of different models. These people call them kitchen stoves, but a lot of the families that lived in the Roarish Ford in Spring City were blue collar families. A lot of them lived in half a doubles. And a lot of them, if they had one of these stoves, that was what they used to cook on, and it's also what they used to heat the house. Wow. 
when, when, you, when you look at some of these other fancier stoves, like that one back there, or any of these, just these here, those would have been, uh, the wealthier families would have had more than one stove. They'd have had a kitchen stove, and they'd have had ones in the bedroom, and you know, however many fireplaces they had. They would I would have, imagine the ones that weren't used for cooking were the more elaborate ones, because yeah. they were more like a piece of furniture kind of thing. Yeah. Well, the, the, they even got to the point, in the beginning, just like cars, all the stoves were black. Yeah. But then they got the, the, the enameling process, which was uh, done, and, and they did that at Buckwater and at Floyd Wells. Floyd Wells uh, is the second largest manufacturer of stoves in North Ford, and they lasted up until the 60s, and they refused to get into electric ranges. They sold you know, the, the coal, coal stoves first and then the gas gas ranges, but they never went into electric. Electric was something that they didn't want to get into. And electric really, uh, I, as a child, I remember watching television in the 50s, and they were advertising electric ranges, you know, yeah. Hot Point and Westinghouse, and they, they were really making inroads into selling people electric ranges. And, uh, you know, they just... Uh, Floyd Wells, the Bengal Stove Range, they, they refused to uh, to get into that. Yeah. It's hard, I imagine, as you know, these, these industries, whenever there's a big boom of a new wave of yeah. something, you have to weigh whether it's worth the expense of taking on the new uh, the new technology and all that, and, or if it's just going to be a temporary fad. You really can't predict. This um, picture there shows the industrialization of the Aurora Sport Riverfront, and it shows you where all the new uh, buildings that, that went in down there, it shows you, you know, um, some of the buildings that were there, and, and you know, what it looks, uh, you go down and look at it today, but all of those pictures were from industries that were down there. How, can you tell me a little bit about the uh, like the first families? I know we, we, we talked about the books and the, yeah. the history. And a little bit about the Lewin okay. family, the prominent names there, of there, Roars, there, Spring we'll, City. We'll take, we'll take each town first. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll start with, with Spring City. Of course, the Royers brothers were in Spring City. They came around 1800. They each built a house. So Spring City was basically two farms. Bridge Street, which is a street that we come in from the traffic light at Old Jones Motor into the traffic light at the Wawa. That street was the street that divided the two farms. And then when the bridge was built, it was a street that took you to the bridge. Yeah. So we got the name Bridge Street. Yeah. <laughs> Those two brothers lived here. The canal came through. There were two prominent men, and maybe three if you want to throw in Casper uh, Francis, but the two big names that, of the men that were very important in the founding of Spring City was James Rogers and Frederick Yost. Frederick Yost bought the house that the Benjamin Rogers lived in. That, that house was torn down when they built the Rife Shirt Factory, which is now the Flag House. It became a flag factory, and then now it's Senior Citizens' Apartment. It's the flag house. That house sat on the corner. Frederick Yost had a lumber yard, a coal yard. He had a grist mill that was right down at the river. Frederick Yost was an important businessman and one of the founders of Spring City. The primary founder, if you have to pick the number one man, yeah. is James Rogers. 
James Rogers, his father, lived out on the uh, French Creek in East Vincent. And Spring City is carved up out of East Vincent Township. Mm -hmm. At one time, it was East Vincent Township. James Rogers came in, and he built the first store in Spring City, 1835, and it sold to people in town, there were only a couple, and to the canal boats coming down the canal. He built the Lyceum, which is the first meeting hall. He built the foundry. So he built these buildings, and he had a lumber yard and coal yard and stuff. So you, you had two men at either end of the town that had uh, in the development. Now, James Rogers' foundry made stoves, and it really expanded. Uh, Yost had the stores, but, but James Rogers really contributed. The, the Lyceum, which is still there, the building is still there, in the early days of Spring City, all the churches, when they first got formed, they met in the Lyceum because they didn't have a church yet. They, yeah. didn't, they didn't have a building. Yeah. They had a congregation without right. a building. They met there. All of your fraternal groups, the Masonic Lodge and, and whatnot, they all, the Junior Order of yeah. Mechanics, they all met. They built, the, the mechanics built a building there, but everybody met at the Lyceum when it was first put in town. It, wow. it was, the, it, was, it was, and then uh, you had Mechanics Hall, which is a little earlier, was just right up the street. But the Lyceum was very important. James Rogers built that. James Rogers lived out on uh, Brown Drive, and they, they, uh, that house is still there. That's, that's a historic house. You can go out and look at the, the stone house. I did a story about that uh, in one of my newsletters. Uh, so James Rogers and Frederick Yost, and then uh, another guy was Casper Francis. He was a first Burgess, and when the, the Rogers uh, Stove Company uh, closed up when he died, and Smith Francis and Wells Francis, the middle name was Casper Francis, and he was a Burgess, and he was involved with Spring City, and he was also involved with the Stoveworks. But those are the, the three names, uh, and then the, the Royers brothers lived here. The Royers brothers, and go over to cross the river now, we'll go over in the Royers Ford. Royers Ford, before it was developed, was farmland, and you had Three major farms. The Latchaw Farm, the house is still out here. The Latchaw House is out 6th in Maine, right next to the ice cream place, Nelson's oh, yeah. Ice Cream. Sits back, White House. Yeah. That was uh, 1855. That was the Latchaw wow. Farmhouse. Now, <clears throat> Latchaw Farm, that's number one farm. Down at the bottom of the hill, if you go out 3rd Avenue, you, know, you go down to 3rd Avenue and hang a right, Go out there, why, on your left, is the Bergstrasser house. That was built in 1818. It's got a name, a stone marker up on the top of the house, a big white house. It's still out there. You can go oh, see wow. it, the Bergstrasser. Yeah. All three farmhouses are still here. Wow. You can go out 2nd Avenue, down towards Victory Park, and look to your left, and you'll see the Custer Mansion. Big, 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 it's a two, two houses now, but it was the Custer Mansion when it was built. That that's the third farm. So you had three farmers in Roar's Ford, and it was farmland. Once again, carved out of Limerick Township. Yeah. Be, be, before Roar's Ford existed, this is Limerick. We're sitting, yeah. and then Roar's Ford was carved out. 
Now, Roris Ford was here long before the uh, 1879, uh, or yeah, it was here before that. But that's when it became official. That's when people got to pay taxes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them, a lot of the farmers weren't too happy about that. Yeah, I'm sure. But anyway, the railroad came through, Philadelphia Reading Railroad came through. In 1838, everybody got wind that the railroad was coming through, and a lot of people were scared to death at the fire from the engine that spewed fire was going to burn their house down and their fields. I mean, a lot of, yeah. lot of anxi anxiety about the railroad coming through. They didn't, they didn't want that railroad yeah. coming through. The railroad comes through, but before it came through, the Custer family and the Bergstrasser family, they decide they're going to build a tavern right down the intersection of town at the bottom of Main Street. They're going to build a tavern and they're going to sell tickets. They're going to get the franchise to sell tickets. So Bergstresser starts out, and he's building his building where the Pink Moose is today. Okay, Custer, where when you come across the tracks and you see those three billboards, that's where yeah. the Custer House was, oh, okay. the tavern. Yeah. Okay. So both of these people build taverns. With the no, they got used. People. Yeah. <laughs> people, people use the taverns, but they were built with the idea in mind that they would get the franchise to sell tickets. Well, to shorten up the story, the following April over in Westchester, when they did all the paperwork, the railroad ended up giving, uh, <clears throat> and this, we're talking about Montgomery County where this was taking yeah. place, they gave both station taverns the right to sell tickets. Oh. So neither one of them won. They could both sell yeah. tickets. However, Bergstresser's Tavern had more people coming to it. It had the post office there for a while. And the bottom line was that even though Custer had the franchise to sell tickets, it just seemed like everybody was going over to the Bergstresser Tavern. So they quit Altogether, they didn't. They they still a tavern and a hotel and whatnot, but they didn't. They didn't sell tickets. Bergstresser got very tired of the fact that he had that, and he sold it to Daniel Schwenk. And from that point forward, it was Schwenk's Tavern, and it was Schwenk's Tavern up until uh, nineteen thirty one. So it was there for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and that was the train station. Now. After the, the, the tavern was given the franchise and it became the popular place, people from the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad came down and went into the bar, went up to the bartender, and they said, what do they call this place? Because there's only a couple of farms here. Right. You know, what do they call this place? And one of the guys that was sitting at the bar said, huh, he said, this is Roar's Ford. He says, right down there, right out in back here is the boat. The flatbed, that's the Royer's brothers' uh, boat that they take people across the river. That's, it's Royer's Ford. So Royer's Ford was named by the railroad. They came back later that week, and they hung a sign. Well, I don't know if it was that week, but they hung, yeah. <laughs> they hung a sign that said, Royer's Ford, apostrophe S, Royer's apostrophe S, Ford, two words. But the railroad put the sign. All the books that you'll read will tell you that the first sign that was ever hung in town named it Roar's Ford. It was the railroad. 
Well, a lot of people that lived in Royersford later on, like today, yeah. they don't know that the Royers brothers didn't live in Royersford. <laughs> yeah. They lived in Spring City, and they operated a ferry boat back and forth, back and forth between the two towns, and they had a pulley, and it was a flatbed, and you could put a, a, a horse and buggy, like a one-horse one buggy on, on that flatbed, and they would pull you across. Now, oh, wow. if, you had a, if you had a buggy, nine times out of ten, you could cross that river with a horse and buggy. And you asked me about the, the Pennsylvania Railroad trestle that comes yeah. across to Roar's Ford. Well, in the summertime, you can't probably do it now. But in the summertime, in, in, in July or August, when the, when the river's low, if you stand on the bridge and look up towards that railroad bridge, in front of that railroad bridge, there's a natural shelf. It's a stone shelf, and it's, it's almost like a slab. And you can go up there, and before the, the Royers uh, had their uh, boat, a ford was just a place in the river where you could go across the river where it was low, the water was low. Yeah. And people that were going from Spring City to Royers Ford and back could walk across, the water would be up to their knees or maybe oh, not wow. even up to, you could walk across. And uh, if you look in the old maps, it was called Hipple's Ford. Oh, really? Because the guy that owned the property was Hipple. Was Hipple. <laughs> yeah. And then when the Royers were there, they owned the property, then it became Royers Ford, but they also had a boat that would take you across. And it was only uh, three, three cents, you know, and they would tow you across when the, and, and the boat would be on one side, then they could bring it back with the rope. But uh, that, that, that was how Roar's Ford uh, you know, really got, great. got its name. I, I, I'm glad we're not Hipple's Ford. I think that would be, <laughs> be a harder sell, right? Roar's <laughs> Ford has a better ring Roar's to it. Ford has, I'll, I'll tell you something else about A lot of people don't know this. Roar's Ford is the only Roar's Ford in all of the United States and all of Pennsylvania. There's only one Roar's Ford. If you do a search on eBay... You don't have to write in PA. You don't have to write in anything. Yeah. You just type Roars Ford. It's one of a kind. That's Spring awesome. City, a bunch of Spring City. Yeah, there's one in Texas, I think. Yeah, yeah there's, there's one in Tennessee. There's a couple of Spring yeah. Spring City didn't start out as Spring City. It started out as Springville. And uh, in 1867, they called it Springville when, they had, you know, when the town was ordained. But then there was a problem. The post office, when they went to get their official post office certification. They said you can't use the name Springville. There's other towns that have the name Springville. And they had to pick a new name. And they, they had a, a, a meeting. We have newspaper clippings. They had several oh, meetings. Wow. And somebody wanted to be uh, uh, after James Rogers at Jamestown. And somebody wanted to be named Pump Town because <laughs> of the town pump. And there was a, about four or five names, but uh, Spring City ended up being the name. So five years after the town was started, they, they changed it. Now, Springville, the name Springville goes back very early because some of those stoves that were uh, made at, at the, by James Rogers have Springville on them. So, uh, spring, and, and on the old pots, the cast iron pots, they had Springville. So the name, the name goes back before the town was, was named. But when it was officially named, it only lasted five years, and then it became Spring City. So, 
Now, the, the development of, of Roarsford, the first big industry was a stove industry, and the Buckwalters <laughs> came up here, and they, the, the, some of the townspeople, like Lewin and a couple of the other, built a foundry down on First Avenue. They didn't have anything that they could do. They just wanted somebody to come in and rent the foundry and start a <laughs> business. It's like you have a town, you have some people with money. Now, you know, Lewin, they got their money by selling building lots. That's where oh, all their okay. money came from. They got, uh, and that's part, part of the story, uh, when, when uh, William Lewin, the wheelwright, married Rebecca Custer, the big farm over yeah. here, their father sold to them at a very small, minimal amount of money, 31 acres of ground, wow. which is Fifth Avenue and Roarsford out to Lewis Road and out almost to Vaughan Road. They, that was a part of the farm. He broke up the farm for his oldest daughter. And William built this house, and then he took all the ground from Fifth Avenue out to Lewis Road, and he divided up into lots. We have, we have his maps. The, uh -huh. uh, he, and he sold, sold them off. And the, the church, well, the, the, the Lutheran church was over here, and then this is a new, newer one about 10 years later. But he gave the, the church money to build the church. He gave the borough money to build a school. And, wow. you know, people, I, I read, somebody wrote a story about him, oh, I don't know, in the 30s or the 40s, and they're saying, what a, what a wonderful, generous man this was. He gave money for the school and for the church. And I said, whoa, 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 back it up a little bit. <laughs> the guy inherits 31 acres of farmland, and he's putting houses on it. And what's going to sell your house any better than having a church and a school? You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, guy, the guy was a businessman. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure that the borough appreciated the, the, the ground for the school. And I'm sure the church welcomed the ground for the church. And I'm sure William Lewin and, and uh, you know, his, his son, John Milton. John Milton was still selling off ground after his dad died. They were yeah. still selling building lots. They were real estate people, yeah. and that's how they got their money. But they realized that in order to make the town grow, you know, they had to attract industry. And it was an easy attraction with the railroad running through town. But they actually built a, the foundry building on between 1st and 2nd, and then the Buckwaters come up. And then they, after 10 years of leasing, they built the big Buckwater Stove Works. So the, the first really major industry in Roarsford was the Buckwater Stoveworks. And that went on to employ 1,200 people. And it, it was the biggest uh, of all six foundries, three in Roarsford and three in Spring City. The other foundries in Roarsford that competed with Buckwater was the Floyd Wells Company, made Bengal Ranges, and Grander Stoves. Grander Stoves is the one that John Milton Lewin, the, the son that, got a start as a shoe store, he ended up owning a third of that stove company, and they, they were successful. So you had three stove companies here in Orris Ford. They didn't start out making stoves. In the, the, in the 1860s, they were making churry cedars, a little cast iron thing that you turn, and it took the chur seeds out of churries. And they made champion, cha Buckwater made champion one treadmills. And, <laughs> You put, it was one horsepower. You put a horse on a treadmill, and the treadmill, the, the horse walked on the treadmill, turned the pulley, you hooked the, the belt to a threshing machine, you could use it as a threshing machine. But on the farm, if you had one of these champion ones, 
You can hook a pulley to, to a saw. You can hook a pulley to any number of pieces of equipment and it was powered by a horse, one, wow. one horsepower. <laughs> and uh, they, were, they made them, they were quality, they made a lot of them. And then finally, they get into making the, the cast iron stoves. And by 1890, Buckwater's, it was just the Buckwater, J.A., uh, Joseph Addison Buckwater was the chief man in charge and it was a Buckwater Stove Company. But it, that, that was, a, you know, one of the big industries, early industries in, in Aurora Sports.